Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show, and thank you for being part of it today. I always got to chuckle at that rooster. Sometimes it sounds more aggressive than at other times, but it's always the same rooster, and it's not even a rooster. It's yours truly, and that was recorded, what, 20 years ago or something. I was goofing around at the KBRT studios and making animal sounds, and uh, Bobby the Bouncer, who was my my board operator, and we call him Bobby the Bouncer because he had a nighttime job as a bouncer at a bar. Um, he was the one who was, had the uh, had the recording going, the tape rolling back then. It was in tapes, not digital, and uh, recorded that and kept it. And so we worked it into the program. There's more to this story, but anyway, I still chuckle after all these years. 33 years now. I don't know if I'm trying to think when Bobby was on board. So it's probably maybe – 30 or 28 or 29 years, he came on board and we used that. But we've been using it for almost three decades. So it's a signature piece. And I actually got a little rooster here, a squeaky. There you go. Squeaky rooster somebody gave me. I can't really touch it during the show like I just did because of that (laughs) noise it makes. All right. Today's a special show, meaning that uh, we're taking all open mic calls. I'm off schedule. Because um, um, you're probably listening to this later in the summer, but I'm taking some time off here and heading up north. That would be northern Wisconsin. I grew up in Chicago, so we always refer to the lake or the cabin as up north because that's up north for us. But actually, it's quite a bit east of me now. And uh, so on those occasions, I take your open mic calls and make a show out of those. Now, open mic calls are those – Calls with questions that you leave uh, with a recording, either by calling in a special number, which I'll give you in a moment, or by going to our homepage and then under podcasts, the section called live podcasts, you'll find uh, an, an opportunity and instructions on how to leave your calls for the open mic call section. And then, you know, take 30 seconds, 45 seconds, maybe a minute. Uh, Some people take longer, but it probably isn't necessary to give me your basic info and we'll run it here on the show. I'll listen to you and then I'll give my answer. So it's a kind of a way of leaving a live call without having to do it live. You're just doing the recording. And uh, then that gives me uh, callers and uh, with questions that I can respond to and talk about. So um, no commentary today. We're just going to jump into the calls. And a, a, a host of them came in recently. I was just looking at some of these. I thought, oh, I'm going to jump on these because these look like fun for me. So let's listen to Joy out of the gate here has a question about old earth, young earth. Joy? This is Joy. And I want to thank you so much for your incredible ministry. You all have been a godsend. Mm. My question is about uh, the creation story. If the earth is old, if you're an old earther, how do we explain the, and it was evening and it was morning, the first day and the second day. Uh, I was talking with somebody about that and they said that was their game changer to know that we had a young earth and that God did create it in the literal six days, which doesn't bother me um, either way, but I know there's a lot of evidence towards the old earth. Thank you, and God bless you. Well, thank you for the question, Joy, and yeah, this comes up quite a bit in conversations. What's curious to me about this particular question is that what I would ask is, if the earth is young, how do we explain the phrase, 
it was evening, it was morning, and the first day. Now, I think that may sound a little surprising to some people because you're thinking, well, there you go. It's clearly a what we call a solar day. Um, the the phrase literal day I don't think is helpful because the word day means a couple of different things. Literally, that means you go to the dictionary and you see that one literal meaning of the day, a word day, is a solar day. That would be a 24-hour day by our reckoning. Uh, another literal meaning is daytime. I'm going to arrive during the day, not at night. That's a literal meaning. Like most words, um, they're equivocal. They have different meanings based on different circumstances. And um, it could also mean a longer period of time. So in Genesis chapter 2, I think verse 4, it says something to the effect of, and I got my Bible right here, so I'll just look it up. It's always hard to get to the first couple pages of Genesis. There we go. All right. And it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So there it's clear that the word day in that passage is not referring to any solar day or daytime, but it is is a a word that's being used to capture the entire creative period, however long that took. But if you're a young earther and you say, well, that took six solar days, in chapter 2, verse 4, the word day is being used to refer to the entire period, sometimes like an era, like the day of the Lord. Okay, that's not a day necessary. It could be a period or other ways that people use this phrase day as kind of a longer period of time. Now, of course, that doesn't tell us what it means in the context of the passage you're referring to. I'm just speaking to the language of literality. Um, and uh, there's different ways that the word day could be used, literally, all right? Now, the reason I asked the question, I flipped yours on its head, so to speak, if the earth is old, how do we explain the phrase, it was evening and it was morning? And then I said, well, if the earth is young, how do you explain the phrase, it was evening and it was morning? And here's the catch and the reason why that question applies as well. Because what is morning? What does morning mean? Morning is the time when the sun comes up. It immediately follows that. Then you get to noon, and then you get afternoon, and then you get early evening. Then you get evening. And what is evening? Evening is the time just before the sun goes down. So to have an evening and to have a morning, using the ordinary sense of the word evening and morning— um, you have to have a sun to dis- define it. The morning is when the sun comes up, and the evening is when the sun goes down. And I, I don't know what else it could mean, because we mean that period of time. Now, keep in mind, you might be thinking, well, not in Alaska, because you could have morning because you're looking at the clock and you know, the sun's not up. But we're talking equatorial now, not modern times where people are at extremes. We're talking more in the Middle East area, where morning and evening were pretty clearly defined as that early time of the day and that later time of the day. 
if morning is when the sun comes up and soon after, and evening is when the sun goes down and just before, you cannot have a morning and an evening without a sun. The sun wasn't created till the fourth day. So how can you have a morning and evening, which means sunrise and sunset, when there is no sun to rise or set? You can have a 24-hour day, in my view at least. I used to argue, well, the sun wasn't created till the fourth day, so you can't have a day in the 24-hour sense. But that's actually not the case. All the sun is with regards to day in that sense is like a watch. It tracks the time that passed, and a day is the time between one sunrise and one sun and a second sunrise, the full 24-hour period. You can have a 24-hour period, though, without a sun to mark the passage, just like an hour can go by even if you don't have a watch telling you an hour has gone by. You can have that duration of time. So the way I used to argue you couldn't have a day without a sun, um, at least you couldn't have the period of time that we refer to as a 24-hour segment of a calendar day without a sun. I don't hold that anymore because I realize you still could have that much time passing even if you had nothing to mark that time passing, okay? And the thing that marked the time passing was the sun that was created on the fourth day. However, you can't have a morning and evening without a sun because morning and, pardon me, evening just is sunrise and sunset. So point being then, um, something else must be going on with the use of these words in Hebrew that are translated morning and evening other than a solar day because you can't have a morning and evening without a solar. <laughs> uh, now, that's a tip-off to me that um, that that there may be a, 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 um, a, a, I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it, a, a metaphor, a figure of speech motif in play here. All right. Maybe these terms morning and evening, uh, which also can be translated, as I understand it, beginning and ending, okay? Maybe, or if used metaphorically, then it is beginning and ending, because morning is the beginning of the day time, and the evening is the end of the day time. And so, if there is a, a figurative motif involved here, it's just identifying segments and not necessarily solar days. Now, I'm not really trying to campaign for one side or the other at this point. I do hold it to an old earth, and these are this is one of the reasons. All I'm trying to show you is that you can have language like this in Genesis 1, and not that does not require a 24-hour solar day understanding so that six of those things are passing from beginning to end, with the last one being the day of rest. It could mean something else. And it does seem to me troublesome to that view that you have mornings and evenings without sun, because I don't know what to make of the phrase morning and evening on a young earth view. I actually think morning and evening are more troublesome for the young earth view than the old earth view, which is why I put the questions the way I did. Okay. Um, so just something to chew on. 
on my view, that's not a problem because it's not identifying solar days at all. That's my view. You could have a morning and evening in a figurative sense um, without having a sun. You just have a beginning and ending, and you have this chunk of time. You know, there's there's actually, when you look at the structure of that passage, um, you you have three areas that are being identified as formless and void, okay? And then you have all three areas being progressively filled. And so you may not have, as some people would put it, a builder's a contractor's characterization of the universe, like you start with the <clears throat> foundation, you lay the foundation, then you build on top of that. That would one that would be one way of understanding how a, a building is formed, to use the kind of building metaphor here. Another one is an architect's perspective, where you look at these areas of living and you put together this space and you fill the spaces. And this might be what's going on as well. I don't, there's a word for that way of understanding Genesis, Um, but I can't remember it, okay? Um, But you can also understand Genesis to be representing progressive events that fit together, so to speak. Now, there's another word for this way of looking at Genesis, too, but I can't recall it. And a young earther and an old earther can hold that. So you have a Ken Ham, young earther, who looks at, at at connecting each of these days with something historical in that sequence. But from a young earther perspective, then you could have Hugh Ross that connects those days together in an historical sequence, but sees it as an old earth scenario. So um, both take the passages um in a, a serious fashion, but they see the passages um, speaking of something uh, a little bit different, at least in terms of the time frames, and where Hugh Ross would see these as longer periods of time, someone like Ken Ham would see it as shorter periods of time. And each has its strengths and each has its liabilities, okay? I have no problem with this discussion, and Joy, you delivered your question in a very good spirit. Um <clears throat> What has happened in the past is there's been a lot of contention about this particular issue and uh, and a lack of charity, I think, instead of seeing that both views are legitimate possibilities given the nature of the text and the kind of writing it is, and um, both views can employ a high view of Scripture. Some people who believe in an old earth don't have a high view of Scripture. All people, I think, who believe in a young earth have a very high view of Scripture. That's good. Um, But both ways of looking at it are options for serious Christians, okay? And um, I remember talking to Hugh Ross many, many years ago, before we both had organizations. And um, he had come in for an interview at KBRT, where I was doing commercial radio at the time, And as we are leaving that night, I said, you know what? It seems to me that it's a lot easier to tell what did not take place, and that would be the Darwinian model, than it is to figure out exactly what happened, exactly how you parse out Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And he agreed with me. Now, he has his view, and he thinks it's well justified. And and frankly, when you look closely at his particular view— 
it's pretty good. It's very intriguing. And like I said, he has a high view of Scripture. Um, but it does have, all views have their problems given the text, and it's a challenge to figure out exactly what is going on here. And the biggest hint to me that there is a, a, a figurative use of this language is really inherent in the concern of this question. Morning and evening, what do you make of that? Well, you can't take it in a straightforward fashion as describing the beginning of a solar day and the end of a solar day because you don't have a solar <laughs> until the fourth day. And uh, sunrise is just the, I should say, morning just is the sunrise and the period after, and evening just is the sunset and the period immediately after that. So there you go, a joy. Hopeful, hopefully that's that's helpful. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with more questions here on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues in science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. I just found the word, and you know, it's maybe you guys experience this too, but there are some words I try to get in my head, I, I try to recall, and I feel like in my mind I'm running my head into a wall. I cannot get past the wall to get the word, and this is one of those words, the one I was trying to think up, but Amy had it right away during the break, concordism, concordism, and that is the approach of trying to take the details of the of Genesis 1 and matching those details up with some detail of 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 the geographic history of or, or geographic whatever development of earth okay and like i said you could do that in an old earth um, from an old earth point of view as Hugh Ross does or from a young earth point of view as 
as um, Ken Ham does, but uh, that's concordism. And then there's another approach, and one I suggested that maybe there's a structural thing going on here, the way that the uh, the entire chapter is organized, and it's really meant to communicate something else. Keep in mind, and, and the the authorship, I should say, the um, the author is Moses. And remember the readership. These are people that came out of 400 years of slavery under Egyptian rule where they didn't know much about the God that commissioned Abraham to build a great nation. All right. And what what Moses is doing is he's setting the record straight for them. Here's your history. And by the way, you have an ancient Near Eastern cosmology in your mind about the sun and the moon and all these other gods. Remember, the plagues were all addressed at some Egyptian deity. And so the sun was a deity. God put the sun out. That was one of the plagues. Okay, he's showing who's boss. But in the Genesis account where Moses is clarifying the mistakes that they that their mistaken understanding of the ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, the sun and the moon have functions, they do not have names. They are things, they are not persons. The person is God Himself who made the things. So that's part of what's being communicated in here. So keep in mind when you read texts like this, the intended audience and what the author was seeking to accomplish. All right, let's go to another question. This is Brian Stone's question, and it has to do with God whispering. So um, let's go to that. Can we do that? Hi, Greg. My name is Brian. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. This is the second time I've submitted a question, and you answered the first a while back. I really appreciate that. Mm. So this one is about, um, I was really intrigued about the articles you wrote, and you've mentioned it on the podcast about Does God Whisper? Mm -hmm. And I just asking for clarity to understand what you are saying God does not do and is potentially harmful and dangerous for the reasons you state and what God does do and the Holy Spirit does do as far as communication. And I guess the confusion is I downloaded the articles you had written on Stand to Reason, the three articles um, and in the first, does God whisper on the third page, you say, um, you know, you're saying that like Paul uses the phrase led by the spirit. Does this mean sensing subtle hints from God that he uses to prompt and push us in direction for his will? And you're, you know, listing the things that people say God ways God does talk and lead and you're in, in saying that those are not scriptural. And then in the third article you wrote on page six, at the bottom of that page, you say that God is a very present help in times of trouble um, and that he's not just a source of comfort, but also a source of understanding, creativity, sudden awareness of answers to hard questions, insights into difficult problems. And then on the next page, uh, it, it says you've experienced his help with the computer malfunction, writing assignments, found lost keys, helped with a plumbing uh, friend, had help with a plumbing problem. Hmm. So having read those two, I just was asking for clarification on what it is you're saying mm -hmm. God and the Holy Spirit do not do as far as communication and what they do 
do do <laughs> and why it's so important we understand the difference. Okay. Sorry for the long question, but I hope that uh, conveys the meaning. Thanks and appreciate it. Well, Brian, you were very careful to be very clear and reading the segments that that are that seem to be confusing, and I'm really glad for that. And part of the difficulty here is tr- is for me to try to speak in a way that is not misunderstood. And a lot of times, I think I misunderstood because the the default the default perspective of evangelical Christians is very particular and very deeply um, ingrained in their consciousness. So even when I speak um, in a way that I think is clear, and I don't always do that, so I'm not saying it's somebody else's fault, but I'm just saying when I try, I think it's read in a different fashion. What is it that's ingrained in the consciousness of evangelicals? Well, I'll tell you what it is, is that evangelicals, um, in virtue of having a relationship with God, are able to have converse—expect to have—are uh, able to expect to have conversations with God in which they talk to God, and then God talks, quote-unquote, directly back to them. That is, he conveys information regarding the specific thing that uh, they are talking about, and oftentimes this is a matter of guidance. Okay, what's next? And the presumption is made that that's a two-way thing, and that's what it means to be in relationship with God. And I've had close friends who have that I love dearly and who I've learned a lot from who have said, we're in relationship with God. There you go. In fact, I even heard this comment just a couple weeks ago from someone I, I really don't know but was challenging me on this. We're in relationship with God. Aren't we supposed to communicate with God? That's Communication is two ways. I mean, in their minds, this was self-evidently true. Now, I do believe that communication is two ways. But what they were understanding, the way what they were both uh, implying, not implying, asserting, is that communication with us is verbal to God, and the response from God is to be verbal to us. We are individual, individual people giving verbal communication to God, and we can listen for God to give what amounts to something like verbal communication to us. And of course, that's the way people will talk about it. And then God said to me, and then I said to God, and then God said to me, and then they talk about their conversations, right? So what? So this is the default point of view, and it's so default that it is part of or ingrained in our evangelical consciousness, such that people don't even... Uh, What's the word? They don't. They don't even question it. It's just like, well, this is the way it is, of course. And if you if you raise a question about it, they they look at you like, what what planet are you from? Okay, it's so odd. And so when I try to bring qualification to it, the qualification is often understood in light of this other way of thinking about it. Okay, so 
what my effort was in the the articles, Does God Whisper? And we also have it as an ambassador's guide. Uh, it's called Ambassador's Guide to Hearing the Voice of God, I think is what we call it. But the articles are still on the website, part one, part two, part three, is, uh, the, is, is to – mostly is to spend time disabusing Christians of proof texts or their confidence in proof texts that they think teaches this that doesn't. They don't teach this. Being led by the Spirit, Romans 8, Galatians 5, for example, the only two places where the term, the phrase shows up in their Pauline, they don't mean what people mean when they use the phrase. They mean something different. Paul meant something different. It's clear when you read the passage, he is not talking about anything regarding decision-making or hearing from God. He's talking about living a holy life, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, okay, to give you a quick study on that. Um, having a peace about it. This is a hint that God wants us to do the thing we're praying about. We feel a peace about it, Colossians 3. That isn't what Paul was talking about in Colossians 3. He's talking about conflict between Christians. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. All right? And that's what he's talking about in that. Open doors, closed doors, another set of passages. Uh, um, and um, like a closed, like an open door is, an, is a hint from God to walk through it. Well, Paul didn't believe that. Because in chapter 1, I think, of Second Corinthians, he said, a great door for ministry has been opened for me in the Spirit. But I was concerned about Titus, so I went and saw Titus instead of going through that open door. And there are a number of other passages, my sheep hear my voice, that's in John chapter 10. Came up in conversation recently, a couple of weeks ago, with a person taking exception with my view. And so I just asked him, where was the verse? He didn't know where it was. And and what was going on in the passage, he didn't know that either. But that's pretty important, especially in that passage, John 10, in verse, what, 4, 5, or 6, uh, John says that this Jesus spoke as a figure of speech. So hearing his voice is a figure of speech of something else. It's not about hearing his voice. It's about something else. And reading the passage, maybe you get an indication of that, and that's what I encourage the gentleman to do. So, and, and you can go back to Samuel, you know, First Samuel 1, 2, and 3, and how little Samuel doesn't recognize the voice of the Lord. He thinks it's, uh, it's uh, um, Eli also there in the temple with him, and three times he goes back and forth with Eli, and then Eli tells him to say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. And <clears throat> this is also offered as a motif of not learning, not not knowing how to recognize the voice of God, and then learning from a more experienced mentor how to recognize the voice of God. And, of course, nothing like that is happening in 1 Samuel, not a single thing there. Um, Eli wasn't a godly man. He was under God's curse. Samuel didn't know the Lord. How do you know that? Because it says so in the text. He had no difficulty understanding when God spoke to him. He just thought it was Eli because he heard the voice and he thought it was Eli calling him. Anyway, so what I do in all those passages is I try to show none of these verses that are used to justify this idea that all Christians are to have, expect, or develop the ability to hear from God or to have a conversational relationship with God. None of these things support that idea. And there's a reason why none of these verses support that idea, 
because that idea is not biblical. This is my case. Now, this does raise a legitimate question. Then what what role does the Holy Spirit have? How does God guide, etc., etc.? Okay? And there's a very straightforward answer to that, which is not satisfying to a lot of people. And I'm just speaking generally here, not, not at Brian, because I'm not saying Brian is, is this is his view. I'm just speaking generally here. Um, that the, the reason it's not satisfying, the answer is not satisfying, is because the source, the main source of the information that we get from God about what we are supposed to do is recorded in the 66 books of the Bible. And every time we are enjoined to obey or listen to the Lord, we are told to do that in light of His Word. Long for the pure mark of the Word, in order that by it you may grow with respects to salvation. That's Peter. And there's a bunch of verses like that. All right, so that's—we are never directed— to turn our ear to the sky and listen for the voice of God. Even the still small voice of 1 Kings 19, there you got a, one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament having a conversation with God. My translation, New American Standard, I don't think even uses that language. I think it says a sound of gentle blowing. But in any event, when he comes out from the rock, the, the, uh, the crack on the rock, wherever he is, being protected from the glory of God, he has a conversation with God, and God talks to him. All right? It isn't a still, small voice inside. It's a conversation. Okay, so when I look at all of these passages, then I wonder, well, where did this other thing come from? And J.I. Packer said it's actually 150 years old. That's about it. It developed later in in, in the Christian era, this idea that we each can get—watch this now— personal revelation from God. Well, wait a minute. We're not saying that it's revelation. Well, what is it? What is it? If God is talking to you in some fashion and communicating with you, and this is the one of the words that you use, Brian, and I'm glad you used it because it's a good word. It's more precise. If God is communicating with us something of content that is revelation from God, okay, that's God's word to us in that circumstance. It's not, it's not the Bible— in the sense that it applies to everybody, but it is like the words in the Bible in that it's God's Word. And God's Word is God's Word wherever it shows up. Different application. We're not adding to the Bible, which is for everybody, but for people who claim there's a prophecy here and the prophecy is given to this person, that's God's Word. And if it's God's Word, it's without error. Okay? So the question is, does God give His Word individually to Christians today? And my answer is, yeah, I think he does. Once in a while, occasionally, but rarely. That is not the Christian motif. That is not the biblical motif for Christians to be in relationship with God. The biblical motif is we take God's Word, which is illuminated to us by the Holy Spirit, and we apply it to our lives as is appropriate. Okay. Now, keep in mind, and by the way, this is a standard theological category, the illumination of the Spirit. Great word, too, because if you walk into a dark room and there's no illumination, you don't see what is there. 
But when somebody flips the light on and the room is illuminated, you see what's already there. The illumination doesn't create what's there. It helps you to see what's there. And so the Holy Spirit helps us to see what is already in the objective Word of God. And then there's kind of ineffable, that means it's hard to explain the process, way in which the Holy Spirit makes that Word real to us and into our circumstances. But it's not a communication from God. It isn't God saying, okay, here's this verse, this I want you to read right now. That's a propositional communication. But that isn't the way it works. What happens, and you all know this, because it's happened to you when you open up the Scripture and you're reading a passage, and the passage comes alive to you. And and then there is there are occasions, times of conviction of the Spirit, because the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. We know that. That's what Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse. He convicts of sin. And that means we, we're looking at a passage that's describing how we ought to live, and we become aware that we're not living that way. We all know what this is like. The content is coming from the Scripture. The awareness of falling short is coming from the Holy Spirit. All right? So that's kind of like added to it, but the content is in Scripture. This is what I'm talking about. When we—so when we, um, so simply put, uh, the— and here's the way I describe it to audiences, because I do think this is um, easy to misunderstand and hard to hear, because if Christians are taught and they have come to believe that they can have a conversational relationship with God the way I've described, you talk and then he talks, some people call it listening prayer, which, by the way, there's not a single verse in the New Testament I have every verse in the New Testament on prayer. In fact, you can go to our website and find New Testament on prayer, and there's the entire outline, every one that makes any reference. There's not a single verse that talks about listening prayer. But if you if you are convinced that that's the way it works, then when I begin to try to disabuse people of that concept, it's like taking God away from them. They're very emotionally attached to this idea that God speaks directly to them. And by the way, I understand that. I'm very sympathetic. I wish that would happen more often. But the, what I explain to them is God can do anything he wants. And that means he can talk to anyone anytime he wants, in any way that he wants. He is free to do that. And he does do that kind of thing on odd occasions. I, I've had—I can think of one experience when I was in Bucharest— in 1976, that was communist time, right? Iron Curtain time. And we had the, we lost the address of a contact. And so we were just walking down the street in the area we thought maybe we're in, we thought it might be. In the city of Bucharest, it's the capital of the whole country. And we just kind of chose these places. And as I'm walking down, I I just all I could say is I just had the I don't know if impulse is the right word or awareness or conviction but I saw toward down a building towards the alley a sidewalk towards the alley there was a door that had a plaque on it and I just thought I need to go and read that plaque and it turned out that the plaque was the name of the place that we were supposed to go 
Now, the Holy Spirit was all over that. But the Holy Spirit didn't tell me to go down there. I didn't feel God speaking to me. What God did is accomplished his purpose without having to do that. And, of course, we've got lots of circumstances like that. And this is why, you know, when I go to write something, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to help me to write effectively. When somebody calls, I toss up a prayer and I say, help me doing this and whatever. And I'm putting my trust in the Lord that he is going to work through me to accomplish whatever end I have in mind, whether it's a spiritual end or something as simple as finding my keys. I lost my keys. Help me with my keys. I make, I, I pray, and then I find my keys, and I thank God. I don't find my keys because the Holy Spirit was telling me where they were lost at. I'm looking all over, and that might occur to me, why don't you check here? But lots of things occur to me like that, and sometimes one of the things that occurs to me is the location of the keys. And I discover that when I look there. And then what do I do? I thank God. Okay, so there's—I don't know the dynamics of the interaction of the Holy Spirit in all of these different cases. What I try to do is I try to—I ask God for help, I trust Him for help, and then I do the thing. And then if it works out well, then I thank Him for it. And if it doesn't work out well, gee, give thanks in all things, right? Then I thank Him for that. My line is, and I say it multiple times a day, you know, Lord, you know, well, that was crazy what just took place. That didn't go very well. What's up with that? Well, you know, Lord. And this is my way of acknowledging his sovereignty. But I have no interest in tuning into the spiritual ether because there is to to get messages because there is no indication anywhere in scripture that I should do that. And in fact, when God does do the intervention with special revelation— It happens 14 times in the book of Acts, starting uh, from the time of Pentecost, okay? So, in in the—strictly speaking, the New Testament economy, when the Holy Spirit is given, you have 14 times where God intervenes with direction. Now, two of those—at least two of those are jailbreaks, right? There's a—an angel shows up and says, get out of here. And then Peter gets out, and he thinks he's in a dream, but he's all out of jail. I just read the other occasion where the disciples, the apostles, were in jail. Then they got let out of jail, and the doors were still locked. And they went to get them, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Okay, we got to talk to these. Wait, where are they? They're not in jail anymore, and the doors are locked. So that was a direction from God through an angel for them to do something. You have three occasions of direct revelation, I think, during Paul's conver- Saul's conversion. You have another occasion where Philip goes and he, um, and he uh, witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch, and then you've got, you got body transport involved there. Uh, you've got the first missionary journey commissioned specifically by God, not the second and not the third, only the first. We don't, we're not told of the motif, it just says the Holy Spirit said. But it does say that they were in the company of prophets. And my suspicion is that was a prophetic word. Point I'm making is God does intervene while the disciples are carrying out what uh, uh, commands that they know are appropriate for them to do. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. But sometimes God gives a timeout. Here's what I'm going to do right here. Not very often. But when he does, 
first of all, it's supernatural. In every case we have a motif explained, we have a supernatural manifestation. An angel shows up. Jesus shows up at Paul's bedside. Don't fear any longer have many people in the city. This is in Corinth. Okay, there's a vision. They're supernatural, and they're clear. They're supernatural, and they're clear. So notice what I'm trying to do. I am trying to build my theology about these things based on what I see in Scripture, the patterns there and the teachings there, and not on what I have are the received traditions of evangelicalism today. And this received tradition of us all having the capability and should work towards having a conversational relationship with God, this tradition is justified by proof texts that don't support the idea. That's one stage here. Secondly, I don't see this anywhere else in Scripture as happening, not the way they describe it. I do see interventions that are rare and clear and supernatural, and they redirect the disciples. And I have no reason to believe that doesn't happen today, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's not like, you know, there's Saul of Tarsus struck blind saying, uh, Levi, I don't know, but I, th- I think that, that God's trying to talk to me. <laughs> Here was unregenerate Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, who didn't have any difficulty hearing, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this idea that we have to learn to hear the voice of God is actually a libel on God's character, because God doesn't try to communicate. There is no place anywhere in Scripture where God makes an attempt to communicate, and the people to whom he's communicating don't hear him. It's not a skill you have to learn. God doesn't try. Okay? Now, with that in place, I think it takes a while to absorb all that. I get it. But then the question is, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? And my answer is, you do the same thing that I just did about hearing the voice of God. You go back to the texts that seem to speak to that and see what they say. And when we do that, say, in the New Testament, we develop a New Testament pneumatology, a doctrine of the Holy Spirit based on New Testament texts. And we learn that the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment— The Spirit baptizes us. He regenerates us. He seals us. These are all different things that it talks about the Holy Spirit doing. The Holy Spirit also um, leads us. Oh, there you go. Okay, wait. We have to make sure that we are understanding the leading of the Spirit in the way that Paul means it when he talks about it in Romans 8 and in Galatians 5. And in Romans 8, he says, that all who are sons of God, oh, all that are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And he's in the process of talking about two different directories, trajectories, living according to the flesh, that's unregenerate type living, or living according to the Spirit. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. It's not possible. But you are not in the flesh if, Paul says, the Spirit of God dwells in you and anybody who does not have the Spirit are none of his. But if you are, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, 
That's led by the Spirit. It's right there in the context. All who are led by the Spirit are children of God. What is led by the Spirit? It's putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what that means, that you are overcoming sin in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's another role of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, which means that. And when you page over to Galatians chapter 5, the same language is used in the same way. Walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that lists all these gross things. And then if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, by the Spirit, you are not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So you're not under the law because in the Spirit, you are fulfilling the things of the law. Same meaning in both places of led by the Spirit. It doesn't mean dropping hints about what you should do. So when I do this biblical analysis, I do not come up with the point of view or the doctrine or the understanding of uh, the, the actions of the Holy Spirit in our lives day to day that those who advance this idea of hearing the voice of God think is appropriate for Christians. Now, the dangers, and I'm glad that you brought this up, Brian, the dangers, if you are told that God is trying to talk to you, but something you're doing is getting in the way, that if you want to live an optimal Christian life, and this is the way it's often characterized, maybe using other words, but even so, if you want to live an optimal Christian life, then you have to be able to hear the voice of God, discern the voice of God. This is, Henry Blackaby's all over this, okay? Uh, and that guy's a social movement, and it's all built in this notion, getting assignments from God. And uh, if, if you're not getting that, then you're not living an optimal Christian life. So seek after the ability to do that. Well, wait a minute. Why is it on my side of the ledger in order to try to discern? Can't God make his voice clear? And my argument is, yes, he can. And when he speaks, it is clear. That's the record of Scripture. And if he's not clear, then he's not speaking. And when I say speaking, I don't mean, man, I, I really lined up all the hints, and I really think all the hints line up. God doesn't hint. He just does. Now, some of the things that you take as a hint may be just opportunities presented to themselves. You get to choose. Based on the best wisdom and counsel you have, your awareness of your own gifts and opportunities and all this other stuff, you choose. God doesn't make those decisions for you. God isn't going to choose a wife for you, not in the way most people think, or a husband for that matter. Now, if you think so, then you're going to go around finding the guy who you feel God is nudging you towards. Now, you can already see the dangers. People get married like this. I, I've talked to people who got married like this, and I said, how's it going? They said, it's not going well. They got married because they thought God told them that they were the right ones for each other. Now, look, at once you're married, it's God's will to stay married, and you work it out. But this isn't how you get married. There is not a word in Scripture that teaches that thing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7 is the longest passage on marriage in the New Testament. Gives you lots of wisdom about it, whether you should get married or stay single, etc. That's the big question that Paul addresses. He doesn't say, yeah, pray about it and see what you feel led to do. He just gives you the pros and cons and the moral 
obligations of both options. And then he says, essentially, it's up to you. I think you'll be happier if you stay single. That's what he says. But that's up to you. You're not sitting if you don't get married. You're not sitting if you do get married. So even one of the most weighty decisions that we make as Christians, God leaves it in our hands, giving us the criteria in the Word to assess the circumstances. A lot of stuff in Proverbs says in Proverbs, like the gold ring and the snout of a pig is a beautiful woman without discretion. Now, he uses a woman in this particular case because he's talking to his son. I guess he was, he was talking to his daughter. He could switch the genders or whatever. Now, is it a sin to marry a beautiful woman has no discretion? No, it's just stupid. That's the point of Proverbs. You get the, you get the, the gold ring, but the pig comes with it kind of thing. So be smart. Proverbs says a lot about that. That's part of our decision-making process, okay? The key here is let's make decisions the way the Scriptures represent the process of decision-making, not import a foreign model that is very popular now and, and, and proof text in a deeply flawed way. Because once you start looking for voices, nudges, hints, guess what? Chances are pretty good something like that is going to happen. That is, things are going to happen that you might mistakenly take as a hint. I remember in one service, I was actually, my my son graduated from Westmont, and at graduation, um, there was a testimony of a parent, and he was at, they were trying to decide where to go to, their kid go to school, and um, and somebody just leaned over him and just said, hey, Westmont, like that. And they knew that was the voice of God to send their kid to Westmont, and everybody's cheering and clapping. And what I thought was kind of funny is it's a good thing that the person who said that sitting next to them wasn't hungry and was waiting for the service to end so he could eat, and he didn't lean over and say to the parent, McDonald's. Would that mean that God wants this person to work at McDonald's the rest of their life? Notice what happened, though. That was convenient. It wasn't a sin to send their kid to Westmont. I'm sure he did well there at that time. But notice that you read into somebody's stray comments a directive from God. And then sometimes this this comment or these circumstances, what is taken to be little hints that you cobble together to get the direction, what, why, what, by what authority do we give that divine authority? But it's done all the time. And lots of bad decisions are made as a result. That's the danger. And so um, what that whole thing that I'm trying to do with this I realize it's iconoclastic. People get really angry at me. If I write a book about this, and I've done a lot of writing on it, maybe I will write a book, Does God Whisper? We'll see. It won't be a five-star book. It's going to be 2.5, because I'm going to have a bunch of five-stars, and I'm going to have a bunch of one-stars, because that's the reaction I get when I explain these things. And people will say, essentially to me, I've heard it, it doesn't matter what (laughs) <laughs> biblical case you make, I know that God is speaking to me. That's it. So they opt for the subjective instead of the objective. In fact, when I suggested 
the Scriptures is the place where we get our guidance, and that's where God wants us to go. Thy word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. For example, in the, all of someone, Psalm 119, I had somebody call me on the air as a woman, and she said, so all I've got is the book. That's it. I got the book. Yeah, the Bible, the booby prize. That's all you got is the booby prize. No, you have the Holy Spirit in great measure in many ways in your life. What you don't have is the Holy Spirit sitting on your shoulder, whispering in your ear, telling you what to do. He's given us the book to do that. And the Holy Spirit has many other functions described in the book that are alive in our lives and are ineffable, subjective, satisfying, fulfilling, etc., 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 but if all you, th- if anyone thinks is that the role of the Holy Spirit is just to give us messages, and if he doesn't give us messages, what, what does it do? Then you need to read your New Testament more. Okay. Brian, I'm so thankful for your call. I kind of spent 20 minutes or more, maybe 30, talking about this. I hope I covered some of the bases, and I understand that it's controversial and even a lot to digest. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. That's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Okay. Bye-bye now.